you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we're talking to your elected officials. Today, we have State Representative Andrew Fink representing Michigan's 58th district, including Hillsdale and Branch counties. Thank you for joining us, Representative Fink. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me on. So our top story this afternoon comes from the Detroit News reporting on the budget. Of course, the budget passed over the summer, so it's not new. But last week, the Detroit News published an investigative piece with the title based on a quote from House Minority Floor Leader Robbie called Shady as Hell, How Michigan's Secret Budget Benefits Developers and Donors. I want to read a few quotes from the article and then get your reaction. Quote, A $1 billion spending spree on projects was orchestrated largely behind closed doors by Michigan's leaders earlier this year, with taxpayer money being directed to benefit the plans of private developers, campaign donors, and political interest groups, a weeks-long Detroit News investigation found. The list of about 150 projects set to receive, quote, grants, was developed privately by legislators with the Republican caucus and Democrat caucus each getting a portion of money to divvy up. The final list wasn't released to the public until the night of the vote, and some legislators weren't aware of taxpayer money benefiting their own districts until being contacted by the news, end quote. Now, one final comment and your reaction. What lawmakers and others interviewed by the authors here say is unique is that, like in D.C., for instance, we would tout and shout from the rooftops to our constituents when we get them earmarked funds. If you get a grant for an interstate highway or port deepening, a government lab or other facility, the constituents are going to know. Here, the lawmakers aren't telling constituents. And, I mean, at least they're telling the Detroit News they don't even know about these projects. Uh, a headline from MLive on Friday uh, highlighted one of the projects mentioned by the Detroit News uh, titled How Ann Arbor Project Got $20 Million Earmark Still a Mystery to Local Lawmakers. What do we make of all this? Yeah, it certainly is a good headline. And Yusef Ravi, the minority floor leader, is always handy with a good quote. So I'm not surprised that he, he came up with one for this. Um, Josh, in the grand scheme of things, one way to look at this is it's a bipartisan budget. In order to get the votes there, uh, projects are you know, located around the state. And I guess that's probably an accurate you know, sort of technical explanation. But beyond that, I just have to say I don't really know given that whatever these closed-door meetings they're referring to or whatever, I'm not in them. And I don't think there's any projects in my district, although the Detroit News didn't call me to tell me about any. And even if there are, I can I can certainly just say they aren't, they aren't projects that I asked for. Uh, so I don't know about them. Um, and it's I do think there's probably a degree of sensationalizing going on here where, you know, the number one billion is, of course, catchy. Uh, but the kind of particularity of it, like this budget in this state or whatever, I do I do sort of think that it's probably a similar story in most legislatures and, well, most state governments, especially where there is divided government. And the budget process often includes ways to try to bring people along who otherwise might not be inclined to vote for the budget. In my case, what I was focused on with this budget was the record debt relief that our state budget included, I think $2.5 billion dollars. Uh, so, you know, more than two and a half times the amount of money that we're talking about here going towards debt relief. The basic functions of government that our families rely on, like keeping schools open and in person, the basic functions of government, which everybody sort of needs on a day-to-day basis, that, that might not think of it. The, the parts of the government that sort of provide licenses or are sort of in the background of our day-to-day life, those are the reasons that I thought it was uh, worth getting the budget done on time in order to... to keep things moving and try to get things pointed in the right direction in some cases, uh, like the debt relief that hasn't been as big of a focus over the last several budget cycles. So that's kind of my overall take is I don't really have any particular information about it. And it's not really, in my mind, the most important thing that happened in the budget. And I don't necessarily think that it's as sensational 
it might not be an ideal situation. And I guess you, you do make an interesting point, Josh, that earmarks are often lauded in, in the congressional budget. And people talk about you know, whether your state's a donor state and getting more money spent in it than you, your constituents paying taxes or whatever. That doesn't really happen at the state level as often. Uh, but it's just not a conversation I myself was a part of. So I don't I don't have a whole lot of deep insight into it. Now, as far as what this says about what the government should be doing, I mean, that's something that we talk about a fair amount here. We are talking about $1 billion that's going towards uh, economic development. And I mean, the one highlighted by the Detroit piece, as well as the later MLive piece, I mean, it's an Ann Arbor development, $20 million, a nature conservatory with condominiums and a nine-story hotel. Uh, currently, it's a contaminated riverfront site. I mean, we've got other projects, uh, $15 million for water systems and utilities, but for housing development, that's out in Salem Township. $100 million going towards the construction of a University of Michigan satellite campus in downtown Detroit. So there, there's a lot of money being spent here on some of these, some of these, including, you know, private developments, you know, so you've got a nature conservatory. Oh, but money's also going towards a hotel and you got a college campus, but money's also going towards other developments nearby. So what do you have to say about whether or not this is an appropriate use of government funds in the first place? Yeah, I, no, I think that that's a, that's really, that's probably a more important piece to focus on, which is what makes a, what would make our state more competitive with states around the country. And there is kind of a narrative out there that the answer is what is referred to as economic development. It, it usually winds up being in the form of some kind of grant partnership with the state or something is how the advocates would describe it. And I think at the end of the day that, I mean, it's true that other states, including states that are performing better than we are economically, have even more robust versions of this going on. The grant money available, for instance, right now in North Carolina is often referred to, and that is a state that's growing and its economy is growing uh, kind of organically as well. And so people look at that and say, well, Michigan needs to be like this, or North Carolina or Tennessee or whatever will continue to be more attractive. But the way I would look at it is different. And I would say, if you look at the states that are growing, economically growing, you know, you, you will find states on the list like Texas, Tennessee, Florida. All those states have lower income taxes, lower energy costs, and lesser regulatory schemes than we do. Those are the things that I would look at as a kind of a way to bring Michigan into the 21st century. Our corporate tax rate is not competitive. Our personal income tax rate is barely what you could call competitive. In the states I just mentioned don't have a personal income tax at all. When you look at what would make Michigan a competitive state, I certainly don't think it will ever be, you know, a million for that project or a hundred million dollars for, for this project. Um, I think that the answer would be make Michigan the place that it was for the first half of where everybody kind of wanted to be. And eventually we built ourselves into an agricultural and manufacturing powerhouse um, that not many other states could claim to be. And that, I think, is where we should be focused on kind of being a generally desirable place to be rather than trying through one-offs to say, well, we can make this place, particular area, you know, the spark that sort of sets the whole state's economy on fire. I just, I'm a skeptic of that. And the fact that other states are doing it doesn't really, to me, mean that we must do it. Instead, to me, it means, well, then that's not going to be the difference between us and them anyway. So let's find what differences there can be that put us onto sounder footing. All right, well, let's talk about uh, some of that development as far as manufacturing goes. Uh, the Detroit Auto Show, of course, is going on up the road right now. Uh, I was passing through Detroit Airport this weekend. All the signs were up, people excited. Uh, President Biden was even out there stepping for EVs uh, about this time last week. 
In the midst of all that, Governor Whitmer dropped her Michigan Future Mobility Plan, uh, and she, she identifies as having three pillars, which more so than policy proposals are more just general values and, and kind of goals. Uh, the first is to help transition and grow the mobility workforce in the state that is transitioning it away from gas-powered car production to electric car production. The second, providing safer, greener, and more accessible transportation infrastructures. And she outlines that as including like EV charging stations, hydrogen gas options as well, and then boosting transit options across the state. Finally, maintaining Michigan's spot near the top of the nation in automotive R&D. Further, she says, oh, I wanted the state to be carbon neutral by 2050 and have a complete EV charging network by 2030. What do you think about all that? You hear all of this, you see the president and the governor together at the auto show talking about electric vehicles. Is that the type of thing that is going to make our state better, more competitive, and, and the type of place that people want to come move to? I do think that there is almost an emotional or psychological uh, feature to Michigan, you know, leaders, business leaders, politicians, whatever, uh, talking about the auto industry. And yes, one version of it is I think some people sort of think Michigan has a right to be the leader in the auto industry and others think that we have a duty to be a leader in the auto industry. And my reaction is, well, Michigan's been a leader in the auto industry because we were the right place to locate those businesses in the early days of the industry. And if we remain, or I guess if we become again, the best place to locate that kind of industry, well, then we'll deserve to be the leader in the automotive uh, world. But it's not going to be because the state government says this is what we're going to be. So I'm skeptical of the plan, such as it is. And you're a little kinder in saying it's uh, values. I, mean, I, I read the press release that the governor put on. I thought it was basically gobbledygook. A lot of promises that she knows she will not be responsible for keeping. Michigan carbon neutral by 2050. Well, she'll be like 78 years old and have been out of office for a minimum of 24 years, I think. So I don't look at that as a very serious perspective uh, from a politician who's running for what will, regardless of what, what else happens, be her last term as governor of our state. My response is that if Michigan is going to be the automotive leader, then that means we have to be the state in which those companies can naturally thrive the best. And they are already here. They already have major investments in our state. They have a lot of reasons to be here. Um, but if we don't, for instance, reduce our energy costs, if we don't make our corporate tax rates more competitive, it's just going to be difficult to, to persuade not just one company, but an entire industry that this is the place that they're going to want to be. And it's just, I don't think it's going to be because of the press release from the governor's office. I do think that there's probably a market desire for more EV charging than there is out there right now. And I also think that the market will probably do a pretty good job of figuring out where those charging stations need to be, uh, just like I don't think that the state planned out where the gas stations are in our country. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just not something that I don't really trust the governor uh, to put together a plan to keep Michigan's automotive industry here. Uh, what I do think the governor could do would be to stop vetoing tax cuts that we send her. And that, I think, would be meaningful. But I don't regard this plan as meaningful at all. Now, when it comes to other issues in transportation, I mean, the governor, for instance, ran in 2018 on a promise to fix our state's roads, which, you know, is certainly a legitimate complaint. And today, U.S. News ranks Michigan 35th in terms of infrastructure. Reason Foundation last year put us at 34th for roads particularly, which is worse than our neighbors in both Indiana and Ohio. But as those numbers show, it hasn't really gotten much better in the past four years. We're talking about electrifying transportation or, you know, having public transit more accessible. But 
what what really is the Republican counterpoint to some of that as far as uh, our transportation infrastructure goes? You know, what can Tudor Dixon or you, you and your colleagues in the House and Senate offer Michiganders as far as something that might actually get our roads fixed or improve our infrastructure and make that side of us more competitive? This is an area where the state's policies do impact what the private sector is able to provide. I mean, obviously, the state owns these roads, and so the state has to manage their care. And I think one of the mistakes that the governor made is in thinking that when the state decides to invest a ton more money in the roads in one or two construction seasons, that doesn't mean that there's all of a sudden a number of vendors or contractors or whatever available to do more road work. And so some of what we've experienced, I think, has been inflation. Obviously, we've had general inflation for the last uh, year. That's been pretty acute. But in the road building industry itself, we've, we've experienced some kind of you know, specific inflation there as the state has tried to get more uh, projects built without really a larger number of entrants into the market to build the roads. And it winds up driving up the cost of each gig as construction firms are less desperate to to get a a new bid if they've already got some other work that they're working on. And so they raise their own prices because they are now in a position of strength. So I think the governor's biggest mistake here hasn't been identifying the problem of our bad roads, which I'm kind of surprised that people think we're only 34th or 35th worst. I've been in a lot of places in this country, and I can't think of very many places that have uh, roads any worse than ours. But in any event, I think that the, the problem is in thinking that this problem that built up over decades and decades of, of, I do think, a lack of investment in our infrastructure can be fixed in a few short construction seasons. You know, last summer, the Mackinac Policy Conference that the Detroit Regional Chamber puts on, I wasn't there, but I saw a quote she had from there where she said, I never promised to fix the roads, which would be a surprise to any voter from 2018, and that's all they heard from her. And it was a persuasive argument that she was going to kind of do uh, some of the things that I mentioned about the, the budget every year, the basic functions of government that are in the background that kind of allow the rest of us to, to go about the rest of our lives and relative peace and prosperity when things are going well. And uh, and so I think it was a smart thing to connect on. But now that the bill has come due, so to speak, she's trying to weasel out of it because it's not possible to address a 50-year-old infrastructure problem in you know, three or four seasons. The, the issue there is probably exacerbated by the fact that a road building season is not a full year. So anyway, that's that's what I think is that she, she pretended that you could rush through a solution to a problem that's just not susceptible to that kind of thing. I do think that continued investment in, in the roads from the general fund is a good idea. And before Governor Whitmer got there, the legislature was already putting hundreds of millions of general fund dollars into the roads. Um, it's significant. It will continue to be that way. Uh, but it, there's, this, there's just a degree of prudent uh, patience in waiting for the improvements to be seen you know, everywhere across the state because it's been a long time in the state not taking care of the road. Absolutely. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we've got Representative Andrew Fink with us. We've got a little time left, but I want to ask you about one of the bills that's part of this larger debate of abortion in our state. Uh, Obviously, abortion is heating up the race for November. Governor Whitmer's out there saying that her veto and lawsuits are the only thing keeping our state from becoming the handmaid's tale and a total outlaw of abortion. And related to that, of course, is the issue of contraception. Justice Thomas's concurrence and Dobbs worried some people that it might become illegal. The most popular form nationwide, of course, is birth control pills. People worried that they might not be able to get them. 
that's questionable. But Michigan Democrats' response and pro-choicers on this issue was, at least in the past few weeks, to introduce a bill, Michigan House Bill 6366, which would amend the state's insurance code and require every health insurance plan to cover a 12-month supply of contraceptives and birth control. These are year-long health insurance plans, so that's, you know, you could be on birth control for the entire year, uh, subject just to your plan's regular uh, deductibles and co-pays and all of that. Introduced right after Labor Day, Representative Julie Rogers, Kalamazoo, is the primary sponsor, 26 Democrats as co-sponsors. What do you think about this, and, and how do you see that impacting the discussion here on, you know, of course, the related issue of abortion and general women's bodily autonomy and, and all of that in light of a post-Dobbs and post-Roe world? Well, I think that the bill itself is a messaging point for them. I don't think that they probably are very serious about getting this policy done this, this term. Uh, but you're probably right that they think it allows them to make a political point. And I think that one of the points that they probably don't intend to be making here, but in effect are, is a lack of trust in people to... Uh, negotiate for products from insurance companies that they want. And so adding to the list of mandates on insurance companies, it's not a way that I would go about solving problems regardless of what I was trying to accomplish. I can give you an example. There's a there's also a bill this cycle, which I think 90-some members of the legislature voted for, uh, but not I, uh, that would impose a, uh, a uh, price cap on a copay for insulin. $50 a month. And it's just not a, you know, getting, putting the state into uh, that intimate of a kind of relationship between a patient and a, an insurance provider. Um, it's just not what the, what the state is good at. You know, being being uh, the determiner of, a, of the availability of a product or the price of a product or whatever, it's not a role that I see the state uh, appropriately playing or playing very well. So that's that's an issue that I, I think it has come up in, in other areas than birth control or contraception or whatever. Uh, but it, it continues to uh, it continues to pop up in the healthcare space where people sort of think that the state's role is uh, is a little more robust than I think the state can really execute well. Uh, certainly on the topic of abortion, yeah, I do think that the uh, that the Democrats think that they have a strong hand to play with people um, on, on that topic. And I just think that when Michigan voters take a look at Proposal 3, which the Democrats are all strongly supporting, government has endorsed it, and realize the far-reaching effects that it would have, essentially making Michigan's abortion regime comparable to North Korea's and China's uh, and really nowhere else in the country's. Or I should say nowhere else in the world, certainly nowhere else in the country. Um, that, I think, is that's, that's the real message that people need to understand, is that the extreme proposal on the ballot this fall is Proposal 3, which the Democrats support. Nothing from the Republicans is, is going to change the way we go about our daily lives, anything like that would. So that's, that's what I think the, the message on, on abortion should be this fall, realizing how unbelievably extreme and out of touch the democrats have become on this topic all right well that's all the time we have for now but thank you so much for joining us representative fink and you've been listening to radio free hillsdale 101.7 fm thanks josh